What's going on in America? What, what's your sense? We have priests that have done nothing wrong but tried to stand up for the truth being canceled and shunned by their bishop and by their dioceses. Okay, we're having little children told that they should undergo operations that would destroy their bodies. It gives me great pleasure to introduce you to someone who's been on the show before. He is one of the canceled priests. He's not only one of the canceled priests, he's the head of the movement of canceled priests, and his name is Father John Lovell. He, like so many of his confreres, are in the strangest situation in today's day and age where good and holy priests are canceled for being good and holy priests. And uh, this is a huge problem, but it's in providence. Our Lord has it in hand. It's nothing to worry about, but it is time for the faithful to step up. The faithful are actually assisting the canceled priests to be able to afford places to stay and things like that. And the canceled priests are actually serving them in terms of providing sacraments, particularly when they're otherwise restricted, where Latin Mass is restricted, sacraments were restricted during COVID and all of that. The canceled priests were there. Stay tuned for this episode of The John Henry Weston Show. Hey there, friends. I just wanted to tell you about something in case you didn't already know it. LifeSite is in partnership with a group called St. Joseph's Partners because in today's day and age where things are getting more and more strange out there, we want to be sure that, you know, we have some reserves of gold and silver so that if debanking happens, which has happened before and, and seems to have gone on with the truckers and everything else, that we at least have some backup. Um, and so there's been a lot of investing in gold and silver. We wanted to find a company, though, that we could trust with our investments like that. And St. Joseph's Partners is such a company. Obviously, by their name, you know that they're Catholics, and we know that they're very, very faithful indeed. You can go check out the shows I did with Drew Mason, who is the founder of St. Joseph's Partners. But also, I wanted to tell you about a neat little project we did. And this is really for both support of LifeSite News, but also for gifts for those people who sort of have everything and you wonder what you can get for them. Well, we minted a coin, uh, a silver coin, and it's a one ounce silver round, they call it. It has uh, LifeSite on the front for our 25 year anniversary that we're celebrating, but also on the back, it commemorates the overturning of Roe v. Wade with the Dobbs decision. So it's a collector item coin and uh, encourage you to grab one for yourself, grab one as a gift for that person who seems to have everything else, they might like it very much. And uh, please support us at LifeSite News by getting our coin. Uh, we've just printed under 10,000 of them, so it's a collector item, a limited edition. God bless you and thank you. Father John Lovell, welcome back. Thank you, John and Henry. It is always a pleasure to be on your show. Father, we always start with the sign of the cross, if you could lead us, please. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. I want people to know about the Coalition for Cancelled Priests. We've already told them a little bit about it, but maybe what we've not gone into is what exactly you do. And I think that's best told by, if you can tell us a story or two of some of the priests that you've worked with there. What we do that a lot of people associate with us is that we are a financial charity. We raise money in order that priests can pay for canon lawyers, if need be, pay for attorneys. Uh, we're not just limited to the United States either. We're helping priests across the world. 
mainly in the United States and Canada, but not just North America. But it's not only just making sure that they have due process of law, as important as that is. One thing that the Coalition for Canceled Priests does, which is doesn't get a lot of credit, so thank you for the question, is that we try to get have get-togethers for the canceled priests from around the country. In fact, we had one just in January, about eight or nine of us got together. Because one thing that these bishops do when they cancel as a priest is they try to isolate him. And so what we want to do is to make sure that the priests have that fraternity. Secular priesthood, diocesan priesthood is not a religious life. We don't necessarily live in community like they do in a monastery. However, what we've noticed over the last 60, 70 years is priests are now living by themselves because of what I consider a fabricated vocation crisis. And what we're seeing now is the secular priesthood becoming almost a bachelorhood, and it was never intended to be that. I'm from the Archdiocese of Chicago originally, and when I was first born in 1980, there were 450 odd parishes all over Cook and Lake County, which makes up the archdiocese. Now they're gleefully hoping to have that down to 200 because they have so few priests to staff them. And I remember just going around seeing these large rectories that could hold four or five priests. To have a rectory to even have three priests living in it now in any diocese is considered a large parish. And there's not that community life, and we need to get back to that. So what the coalition tries to do is to try to have about twice a year a kind of semi-formal gathering, not necessarily a retreat, but just at the time for priests to get together, cook meals together, talk, converse, have a drink. It's just something that they could just relax and, and get away from the concerns of their daily life of being a canceled priest wherever they're living and just come together with brother priests and just be able to have that talk. And I think out of everything that we've done for the priests, what we get the most feedback from the priests about is doing those retreats. Again, it's 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 nowhere fancy. You know, we usually rent an Airbnb. We just purchased property in Northwest Indiana, a safe house for priests. So we're going to be doing a lot of those things here. In fact, we have uh, the Easter octave. We have about eight or nine priests coming uh, just to celebrate Easter and just to have that fraternity. So we want to make sure that they have that. So I think those are the biggest things. When it comes to specific stories, again, without mentioning names, it's it's knowing that priests can rely on the fact that we have their back when it comes to financial matters, yes, with lawyers, but also so they don't have to worry about where their next meal is coming from. They do not have to worry about uh, where housing is going to be. We're going to make sure, whether it's here in Northwest Indiana or wherever they're living across the country, they know that they have a bed and a pillow to rest their head because so many canceled priests are just kicked out all of a sudden from their rectory. And it, it's quite sad because they're public people. And when you're removed, even if the diocese doesn't really say anything, you know, the rumor mill starts up. It's like, well, Father must have done something wrong if the bishop removed him, and because that's the day and age that we live in. And so we want to make sure for priests that have done nothing wrong, but have been sidelined, have been canceled, that they know that they have a place to live and a place to stay. And so when we get that feedback from priests of the importance of building up fraternity, the importance of knowing that they don't have to worry where their next meal is going to come from, that makes it worth all the while all the work that we do. 
What to you has been one of the most moving stories you've heard? And, and again, no need to use names, but what are like the circumstances that played out? A priest actually in my diocese, we have a dozen canceled priests in my diocese, so I'm not narrowing it down at all. But just that he knew that there were so many laity, he's actually expressed this to me, across the country that are willing to help him. They don't even know him. It brought him to tears. It just simply brought him to tears because he thought he was alone. He's been canceled. In fact, uh, he just celebrated this year 10 years of being canceled. And for him to know that there's so many people coming in of the lady that are helping, that are standing up and saying enough is enough. We want to help support these priests that should be in parishes, that should be ministering to us, is that it, it for him, it was just knowing that there's people there that care about him and, and are concerned about him. And I think not just with him, but with most of the priests that we're helping with, they are floored when they discover the network that we have, the people that we're in contact with. You know, I mean, we'll have priests call us from Timbuktu. And we will have somebody nearby who could go to them and help them. We don't have a huge network yet. We're still building it up. But, you know, for priests to know, oh, wait, you have somebody nearby that can bring me food or can immediately help me with the situation or, you know, a canon lawyer nearby, that for them, that that is a lot. And so when we hear these specific stories, it is things like that. One specifically, too, is we're helping a priest who's actually married. He's a convert from Anglicanism. and. For him to just simply say, even though he loves his wife and he loves the married life, just to be able to have a conversation with priests, to talk to them about his concerns, he says it's something that he can't do with his wife because he is a priest and there's just certain things that priests can only talk to other priests about. Father, what do you make and what do the members of your coalition make of what's going on in the church? Because from the laity perspective... It's it's a zoo. And and I'm not even talking in just some diocese. It's in, I, I, I want to say most dioceses because it seems so strange. There are some really good bishops, and thank God for them. And those folks who live in those dioceses are so blessed. I hope they know how blessed they are. But, you know, I remember Father Altman used to say, it's more than half. And... Uh, Everybody thought, oof, more than half. But then we got just got the numbers from Germany on that vote with the German bishops of 38 to 9 in favor of blessing homosexual unions. Total heresy. But it's 38 to 9. Yeah, there were 11 abstentions, but even the abstentions are horrific. What's going on? And what's going on in America? What, what's your sense? Well, I would say what's going on in America, and I don't know if Canada is like this as well, but it seems like America is about 30 or 40 years behind Europe. Um, what we're starting to notice, especially since the McCarrick scandal, especially since the COVID shutdown, and now Traditionis Custodis, is that the writings of Archbishop Lefebvre are all of a sudden picking up steam amongst Catholics. I, I can't tell you, John Henry, how many Catholics who've never even been to a society chapel or met a society priest. And full disclosure, I only met my first society priest in March of 2021, so not two years ago, is that they're reading a letter to confused Catholics and going, wow, His Excellency is speaking to me. And when did Archbishop Lefebvre write that? The 70s and the 80s? 
I mean, it was it was 40, 50 years ago that he wrote that. And so what we're seeing is, is that America is starting, sadly, slowly but surely catching up with the modernist problem that Europe has been dealing with really since the 19th century. And in a lot of ways, America was sheltered, not only because of two major oceans, but also because Catholics knew that they had they were a minority in a very vibrant Protestant country. And we might not like to admit it, but one of the reasons why Americans, even Catholic Americans, are kind of the way they are is because of the influence of Protestant evangelicalism. I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just pointing out the fact that that's just how it is. And so it kind of slowed what is going on in this country, but we are catching up. And I would just simply say this, with all the good bishops that are out there, and I, I agree with you, there are some excellent good bishops. We need, I think, a little bit more courage from those shepherds. I love what Bishop Paprocki said. And full disclosure, he's from Chicago. I'm from Chicago. When he was a priest, I used to serve his masses at St. John Cantius in Chicago. So I know Bishop Paprocki. I don't know him that well. We haven't really spoken in 20 years. We Every once in a while, we'll be at a conference together and we'll reminisce about the uh, Jubilee year of 2000 and how much hope we had. And now we're looking back 20, 22, 23 years later, and we're just starting to notice there really isn't that springtime. But even with Bishop Paprocki and what he said, we noticed that he simply started to backtrack almost immediately, say, oh, I'm not referring to any specific cardinal or bishop, when clearly he was. Clearly we know that. And I'm not trying to be uncharitable in that. We just know that. And so I, I always strongly encourage the bishops that do reach out to us privately, they don't want to be publicly known that they reach out to us. Stand up and know that you do have, maybe not your own presbyterate, but you do have a presbyterate in exile that is willing to have your back, is willing to stand up and fight with you. And the laity are starting to realize that too. The laity are starting to realize that it's the priests that are going to pass on the faith and not so much the bishops. And that's sad to say, because the bishops are supposed to be the successors of the apostles. That's who they are. They are supposed to be the teachers, the fathers, and the shepherds. And we're not seeing that. We, we do have isolated incidents. And if you look at how large the United States is and how many dioceses, and I'll include Canada in on this, it, it is a very small number. I mean, we can count maybe on two hands how many so-called good bishops that we have. And I think it's just basically because St. Pius X's prediction and prophecy is coming true about modernism. And it really is the summit of all heresies. 20 years ago, if you would have asked me, are there problems in the church? I would have said yes. I, I would, if you would have asked me, is it the worst that the church has ever seen? I would have said no. This is not compared to Arianism. Uh, but now, looking back, not just the 10 years, but now looking back, because I'm, I'm a history buff, especially church history buff. Now that I'm looking back, because of Pope Francis, I'm starting to see that it is as bad, if not worse, than the Arian heresy. This is what we're living through right now. And I want to give everybody just a small glimmer of hope that whenever the church seems to be at its darkest stage, and we all know, John Henry, you and I both know, the church is always in need of reform. But when it's at its darkest periods, whether it's at the Arian heresy, whether it is uh, at the Protestant Revolution, 
men and women step up and they do tremendous things. And some of the greatest saints that we still remember today are results of the Arian heresy and the Protestant Revolution. You know, I think specifically St. John of the Cross, St. Teresa of Avila, St. Philip Neri, St. Charles Borromeo, St. Catherine of Siena. These people came out of a crisis and, and healed the church, all right? And most of the people I just mentioned were not bishops. And so I always want to encourage the lady, don't expect, as Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen says, don't expect the bishops, don't even expect the priests to change and reform the church. It's going to be you, the lady, that's going to do it. The weapons are clear, too. The laity, their most powerful weapons are prayer and fasting. Prayer, ultimately, the holy sacrifice of the Mass. But even when separated from that, God forbid, but we already experienced that once. You know, we have the Holy Rosary and the devotions that the Church has left us that uh, we need to keep up with. Because they are scary times. Uh, scary so, so much so that we were talking just last week about not only canceled priests, but canceled bishops. Sitting bishops, like in Puerto Rico... It was just canceled for not going along with the, you know, shutdown of COVID-19 and um, just canceled. It's unreal. Father, do you envision a time when you might have uh, a bishop as part of the coalition? It's great that you mentioned that because I wanted to ask you about Bishop Torres, Bishop Torres, who was born in Chicago, uh, as, at least as far as I know. A lot of, we get a lot of questions, are we reaching out to Bishop Torres? And our response has always been, if you're able to get his contact information, we would love to send him a message. We would love for him to know, because remember, all bishops are first priests, all right? And so the Coalition for Canceled Priests is going to help all priests that are in need, especially those that have done nothing wrong. And so when I read the article in LifeSite that Bishop Torres did the wonderful thing of taking a year back, a year of prayer to kind of reflect on everything that's happened. And now that he's coming out, I would love, we're having, and you're our keynote speaker, John Henry, our conference in June. We would love if Bishop Torres would come. He doesn't even have to say anything, just to be there, just so that people can see somebody from the episcopacy standing up for what is right. I mean, it would be great. It would be wonderful to see, absolutely. So if Bishop Torres is listening to this, we would love to have a conversation with you, Bishop. We would love to hear your story and see what we can do to help you, especially when it comes to canon lawyers and all that. But I'm pretty sure as a bishop, he has very good canon lawyers that are helping him. These situations are so strange. The faithful are sitting here going, okay, this is really weird. But only those who are awake. Part of the difficulty we have is the crush on information out there is real. And it, the cancel culture, even among the Catholic media, um, is there, and they're shielding information. We saw this for a long, long time with Pope Francis, right, from the beginning. And in fact, even in the very, very beginning, LifeSite was trying to, yeah, must be another explanation for this, so we'd give excuses. But about a year in, we were like, okay, something's really, really wrong. We have to actually just say it the way it is and let the chips fall where they may because this is... This is beyond the pale. And now, uh, nine years after that, every day we have, um, you know, more, more of the same. And I found people tend to move at different points with different things, sometimes unrelated, but people tend to get it 
with very different instances. I remember one fellow, it was, he contacted us and said, okay, now I get it. And it was when um, the Pope used the term uh, for eating feces. Um, but that was it for him. He, he had sort of put up with it till then. And then after he said that, that was, that was it. Because, um, you know, it was just so... Um, and I find over over time, we've seen the Macara thing was a big thing for a lot of people. Um, the time when it was cohabitation is real marriage and have has the grace of real marriage. That was something for a lot of people as well. When along this road did you see there's some very serious problem going on with the papacy right now? You're basically asking what was the straw that broke the camel's back? And you, somebody was feces, which I hope everybody, the straw that breaks the camel's back is feces. But for me, I think it was, I can't remember the country in Central America that Pope Francis visited, I want to say about 2015, and where the leader communist handed him a cross, the corpus of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it was a hammer and a sickle. And then Pope Francis came out and corrected that and said, no, this is exactly what I mean. This, this, is, this is a very good thing. And that's when I realized, for me, that there is a serious problem. Now, were there other things? Yes. I mean, the, you know, the airplane messages, uh, you know, briefers, uh, press conferences, the, you know, who am I to judge? I wanted to say, well, you're the Supreme Pontiff. That's who you are. All of those things were warning signs. But you and I have talked about this before. There were also other signs where he would, like when he, his first trip to the Philippines, it might have been his only trip to the Philippines, where he was stridently pro-life. I mean, and granted, he was speaking to an audience, Filipinos, who are mainly pro-life, solid Catholics, uh, when it comes at least to a country. Not many of those left, sadly. Um, you know, so, I mean, there was always this kind of back and forth, and I've, I always had it described that it was kind of an Argentinian thing to to always, you know, when you're with communists, be the best communist. When you're, when you're fascist, be the best fascist. And But when, when I saw that that corpus of our Lord on the hammer and sickle, I said, all right, there is a serious problem here. And that's when, coincidentally, it's not really coincidentally, I think it's the work of the Holy Ghost, that several of the canceled priests in Rockford started to get together. And then we started talking to other priests outside of our diocese. And then what finally got the coalition started was that we had a priest that was not only traditional Latin Mass. In fact, he didn't even know how to celebrate the traditional Latin Mass, but he was very much wanting his parish, Novus Ordo Parish, English Masses, vernacular. He wanted just better devotion, and he was loved. And they still went after him, still removed him. And we're starting to see that. And I always say to those that are out there that are saying, well, I just don't quite understand what's the big deal about the Latin Mass. I'm like, you want a reverent Novus Ordo liturgy? They're coming after you as well. They're coming after you as well. And so we need to unite. We really do. Just a quick note before we return. If you would like to stay up to date on LifeSite's coverage of the latest life, family, and culture news, subscribe to one of our many newsletters by going to lifesitenews.com slash subscribe. And if you'd like to help us bring our truth-telling coverage to millions around the world, please consider making a one-time or monthly donation at give.lifesitenews.com. And now, back to the video. There's a really neat point that Michael Matt made the other day. 
he was talking about that very concept of uniting the clans, as he calls it. But he was talking about it with regard to Pope Francis, saying he doubts Pope Francis has a liturgical agenda. He thinks that his agenda is about not having these united clans because the power of the united, I want to say faithful in the church, but I guess most people would understand it as conservatives in the church who want a conservative liturgy, would be overwhelming to those who don't want a conservative liturgy or a conservative approach to theology, perhaps, or, or especially moral theology. And he postulated, this is Michael Matt postulating, that that's really the reason why they're going after the Latin Mass. It's to break up the clans. It's very interesting. Very interesting thesis. No, it is. We don't help the situation on the so-called Catholic right, uh, at least with politics in the United States, I'm assuming in Canada as well. The liberals, the progressives, the Marxists, they 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 were happy to put aside their differences to unite around something. I, I remember, you know, when Barack Obama was first running for president, he was against gay marriage. And then it was kind of like, oh, now it's time to come out, you know, and put... Uh, uh, the rainbow flag colors all over the White House, you know, and it's just like he wasn't really serious, everyone. He was just being a politician. You know, now now he's the first gay president and all of this. You know, they 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 wink and nod and just say, yeah, we'll, we'll put these aside. You know, we'll take half the enchilada knowing we're eventually going to get the whole enchilada. We we don't do that. We we bicker and fight. We bicker and fight. And that's one of the reasons why, to let you, John Henry, know and to let your audience know, I hate themes. I hate mission statements. You know, when somebody asks me what my mission statement is, I say, pick pick the prologue of St. John or the chapter six of St. John. But I'm going to tell you this right now. The theme that we have for our conference is a house united. And it's not just because we're in Illinois, where Abraham Lincoln gave that great speech in Springfield, a house united against itself cannot stand. Again, quoting our Lord, quoting scripture. But because we have to realize that we have to come together and it has to stop this whole, oh, well, you only go to the traditional Latin mass. You're a little too extreme for me or vice versa. You're not wearing a mantelletto when you come into church. I'm not going to speak to you. We have to put aside those little differences. Conversations are needed. Sure. Absolutely. I don't agree with that, but we have Babies still being slaughtered in the womb. We have priests that have done nothing wrong but tried to stand up for the truth, being canceled and shunned by their bishop and by their dioceses. Okay, We're having little children told that they should undergo operations that would destroy their bodies. One of the things that uh, you mentioned earlier, which I think is really fascinating, is that Pope Francis does tend to correct people who try and massage his message so it's not that offensive. So um, just like with the, uh, what would you call it, <laughs> the um, communist crucifix given to him by Eva Morales in Bolivia, there was that controversy at the beginning of the Pachamama idolatry, if you remember. Uh, right away we had voices saying, no, no, it's not idols. It's the Blessed Virgin Mary and St. Elizabeth, and they're both pregnant, and they're both seeing each other, and that's what it is. <laughs> We're like um, a nude uh, Blessed Virgin Mary and St. Elizabeth? I don't think so. But remember, it was actually Pope Francis who clarified. He was caught on a mic, um, and it was overheard by the media, saying, no, that the <laughs> Pachamama. So... <laughs> 
Um, he does make that clarification every once in a while, but that should alarm people all by itself because he's acknowledging what? That they are going into heresy and accepting all these things? Very, very strange. wanted to ask you too, Father, what's your take on this new rite of the Mass being proposed for acceptance in May? I don't know if you've seen much of it. LifeSite News broke this story. Dr. Micah Hickson first uh, found, uh, found out about it. Then when she contacted Cardinal Arismendi, who is the cardinal in charge of all of that, he actually sent her the draft right of the Mass that's going up for approval in May. But have you been able to see any of that, and what do you think of it? I'm going to just tell you right now, it's it's trying to solidify the Pachamama. It's trying to solidify what they did. you know. And it was very heartbreaking for me, because that was the same weekend that John Henry Newman was canonized, who... I have great devotion to. And to see that happening basically the same week or the same weekend, I thought, what is this great convert to the Catholic faith of just two centuries ago thinking now of what's going on? Now, granted, he's in heaven. Granted, he's seeing the beatific vision, at least spiritually. He knows the outcome. But it's just amazing to see that they're basically trying to codify what they're doing. They they did this, if you remember, early on in his pontificate. One of the first things he did that was a real shocker was he washed the feet of women on Holy Thursday. We're coming up on Holy Thursday. And so what did they do? They codified it. They said, yeah, yeah, you can do it. Okay. Then when there was, you know, this great debate about whether or not there should be quote-unquote, altar girls, what did they do? Well, now women can be lectors and acolytes, okay? So what I see with this Mayan rite is them basically saying, well, we're codifying it. We're putting it in the act of so that you cannot argue with it, okay? We're making it part of the teaching. And then I think what they're also trying to do, I mean, I don't mean to get too much into conspiracy theories here, but I think they're wondering how far is the neocon, neoliberal, media, the ones that always try to defend, what, what's going to be their breaking point? And because we know that they have a breaking point too. At a certain point, there's going to be a breaking point. And there was very much at the beginning of his pontificate kind of an attack on John Paul II's theology of the body, the John Paul II Institute. And then they kind of pulled back a little bit. But what did they systematically do? They just started replacing everyone at the John Paul II Institute and putting in all of these liberals, Marxists, and just completely throwing that out quietly and surely. So I think that what we see in this Mayan right is them basically saying, we told you there was nothing wrong with it, and now we're codifying it, saying that you have to follow it, especially if you're in the Amazon, which is quite sad. This indication of the beginning with the washing the feet is very interesting, Father, particularly if we look at the new mine right they were approving part of it was this ordination of deacons in a weird way that almost seems to be hinting at ordaining their wives as well. And that washing of the feet, well, you explain to us, what significance did our Lord have in washing the feet of the apostles and why were they only men? Why didn't he wash the feet of his mother who was right there? As far as we know, at least as far as I know, at the institution of the sacred priesthood, it was just the apostles that were there, including Judas. And the washing of the feet was to show 
him as the high priest co commissioning them to go out to be the priests of this new covenant. And what we see in the older rites, and I'm talking about pre-55, not 62, because they were already changing things, and I'm not criticizing that. I'm just pointing out a fact that you mainly only saw the washing of feet in the cathedral where, where the bishop chose, oh, it was John Paul II or Pope Benedict. It was always priests. It was always to show that. And then it started to get relaxed a little bit, even in the traditional rite, where it was, okay, it's men, and you do it outside of Mass, and then you do it inside of Mass, and now you do this. But the whole point was, is receiving that mandatum, that mandate to go out and, and to be the priests of the new covenant. It's not the only thing. It's not even the most important thing. What's the most important thing that happened at the Last Supper? The institution of the Holy Eucharist, along with the institution of the sacred priesthood. And so what they're starting to signify is that they're wanting to say whether it is allowing women's feet to be washed, which I think does a disservice, allowing them to serve at the altar, which again, I and mean, we could have a whole conversation about how I think it's a disservice to, to have women do that, uh, to have them be acolytes or lectors. They're just trying to slowly but surely change the attitude so they can eventually open up to deaconesses. And we know, John Henry, that what we call deaconesses in the ancient church is not what they want. What they want is basically female deacons, claiming the gospel, preaching, giving the sacraments. You know, that is not what the deaconesses of the ancient church did. What the deaconesses of the ancient church did was assist in the baptisms of women. Because usually in, in the ancient rites, uh, West and East, as far as I know, that when you were baptized as a catechumen, you were baptized naked, all right? And just out of a sense of decency for the women, the women helped with that process, and they were called deaconesses. But that doesn't mean it had anything in relation to the order of deacons, which we have come down from the apostles, St. Stephen, the first seven, and now to us today. That, that, was, that was a separate thing. Uh, it looked similar for a few things, but it wasn't the same. I, I don't mean to uh, muddle on, but I hope that makes sense for, for everyone listening of, of the importance of what happens on Holy Thursday is about the institution of the priesthood, the institution of bringing about the service that priests have to do. And for those that kind of wonder, well, why, why can't women be priests? It's because, in my opinion, and I think it's the opinion of the church, I know it's your opinion too, John Henry, it's beneath their dignity, okay? We, they, they are not called to that role. Mary certainly was not called to that role, and she would have shunned it. She would have shunned that role that if somebody would have said, well, we think you should be a priest too, she would have looked at them as, as they had three heads on their shoulders, I'm sure. In persona Christi, Christ came as a man, and uh, he therefore instituted the priesthood to represent him. And he came as a man, and that's not going to change. Yeah, it's, um, it's such a weird world we live in. We, we're seeing a lot of this play out right before us. Um, Father, what are your final thoughts on State of the Church and uh, the role that the Coalition of Cancel Priests are going to be playing in the future? The COVID shutdowns was simply a dress rehearsal for something bigger. Again, I don't want to get into conspiracy theories or being accused of that, but I think they wanted to see how far they could go. And I think they were pleasantly surprised 
and how far they were able to go across the world in, in shutting us down. And so what I, what I think what you're going to see in our lifetime is an underground church that is going to be there to preserve Catholicism and to canceled priests, they're going to be going out in order to give the sacraments. And I think there's going to come to a point where it's so bad, people are not going to go, well, let me see your Celebrate card, or let me see your letter of good standing, or wait, are you with the Society of Pius X? We don't want to have anything to do with you. I think it's going to get to the point where it's going to be grateful to know that you have a validly ordained priest that is willing to risk his life to bring the sacraments. And for all of those that say, well, that can never happen, I will remind them of how Catholic England was before Henry VIII. It was called the dowry of Our Lady. I would remind everyone how Catholic Mexico and Spain was at the turn of the 20th century. And in a few short years, look what happened. I will remind them what happened in Germany and in Austria in the 1920s and the 1930s. Persecution can come very quickly, and anyone who says otherwise is not paying attention to history. It's very strange, too, because even before the lockdown, I got a, a bit of a warning. It was off because um, my information said, you know, within a week, we won't be able to travel anywhere. So I told, you know, people this, some people, close friends and so on. And it didn't happen in a week. It happened in two weeks. But the chagrin I got for telling people that it was going to be a week and then it didn't happen was pretty extreme. When it did happen the next week, it was like, oh, but it's amazing how things come because no one really saw it, you know, oh, come on, we're going to all get locked down in our homes and not going to be able to go even to church or nothing. Come on, that's just ridiculous. And then it happened. And just think of how quickly and how fast, how suddenly that came on. So in March of 2020, when they actually started shutting down the dioceses. And I can't remember who did it. It was up on, on social media. I want to say Twitter. There was somebody that kept putting a blackout over every diocese in the United States as they were going black. Because I know Chicago went one weekend and then Rockford, my diocese, which is right next door, went the next. And I thought, they they can't sustain this. They, they are dependent in the United States. And for those that are watching international the, the Catholic Church is dependent in the United States on the collection, so I thought. So they, they're not going to be able to sustain this for very long. They're going to have to reopen to get the collection going. And what I noticed was, is that what many of them, Cardinal Supich and his ilk want, they wanted to see if they could move away from a collection-based church. And so this is why you see the selling of uh, the closing of churches and the selling of property. And they're moving towards more of a mainline Protestant version of that. They're hoping people just basically leave their estates to the church. I mean, in this country, we have a lot of mainline Protestant churches that we kind of going, there's nobody in there on Sundays. How are they staying open? It's because they build up an endowment. And so that is what I think the church is moving towards is, is, is building up an endowment and so they could say, oh, see, we changed with the times. We're not dependent on the collection as much anymore. And so I I was kind of taken aback by that. I, I, I realized that they were actually switching how they do things. Now, some might say, well, Father, you're just being crazy. But 
Am I? Because in the United States, the church doesn't pay taxes on property. So that's the most valuable thing that the, the church owns. And when they sell it, they make a lot of money off of it. And we're starting to see this all across the country, not just in Chicago or Detroit, all across the country, we're seeing mass sell-offs in order to continue a, a program that seems to be failing. Now, I want to say this, John Henry, because you and I are both people of hope. I just interviewed on my show, Hope in the Desert, is that no matter how bad it might get, no matter how bad I might be putting of doom and gloom right now, is that we have to realize that the Lord is already one. And I think all Catholics of goodwill know that. But they need to be reminded of that, especially as we are now getting so close to Easter, that the the war has been won. What we're doing now is trying to save as many souls before the end. And we're trying to do that in the most charitable way. And sometimes the most charitable way is to show how bad it is getting. So for all of those that are listening right now, this is one of the reasons I love LifeSite News, is that you, you want to not sugarcoat anything, but at the same time you're saying, sometimes you need to hear this bad stuff because it is so bad, it's gonna wake you up. It's gonna be that straw that breaks the camel's back. And, and we, have to, we have to realize that, but always remember that our Lord is in charge that no matter what they do to us, our at baptism, our vocation, every single man, woman, and child, clergy or lady, we're called to a type of martyrdom. And what martyrdom is that going to be? Because martyrdom is martyrdom. If you look at it this way, red, white, does not matter, is that if you're able to give your, yourself completely to our Lord, you're going to be able to walk into the Circus Maximus, into the Colosseum, okay, and face those lions down and be a witness. And so what I think we're going to see, again, in our lifetimes, John Henry, is the church being built on the blood of martyrs. We kind of forget, even though it was just last century, that the greatest century for martyrs in the church was the 20th century. And there was a lot of gains because of that. And we kind of forget that a lot of that was clouded or lost because of what happened in the 1960s and afterwards. Uh, but we have to realize that we are called to that martyrdom and that we will be, our lives will be a witness for others to continue the faith long after we are dead. And we have to keep that in mind because if we don't, then we're going to fall into despair. And that's the last thing either of us want anyone uh, listening to your show to do. Father John Lovell, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for your conference. Your that coming up June twenty third, so everybody can go to the Coalition of Cancel Priests website and sign up for the conference. I'll be there, as will Janet Smith, Abby Johnson, and many other amazing speakers. Of course, Father Altman will be there as well. Absolutely. So thank you so much, John Henry. Have a happy Easter, and please know that your wife and your children are daily in our prayers here at the Coalition. And God bless all of you. And we'll see you next time. Hi, everyone. This is John Henry Weston. We hope you enjoyed this program. To see more like it, be sure to hit the subscribe button below to get all the latest content from LifeSite News. Check the links in the description to read more and connect with us on social media so that you can stay up to date with all the latest life, family, faith, and freedom news. Thanks for watching, and may God bless you.